2 Corinthians 11.3 states, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We live in an age of deception. We live in an age where we're constantly bombarded with information. But the question is, is the information correct? Lies are purported on all sides around us. And the father of all lies is Satan. And Satan is in the business of using the teachings, albeit false teachings, the teachings of false religions and so-called Christian cults to lure many away from the true gospel that the apostles preached. Unfailingly, these false teachers prey not on the unbelievers, but on unsuspecting, untaught people in evangelical, biblical Christianity. They will waltz in and they'll use the Bible. They will claim to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But as you begin to listen to them, they'll deny the Trinity. They'll deny the virgin birth. They'll deny the deity of Jesus. They'll deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for humanity. They'll deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so I'd like us to take our Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 16, so that we can examine this biblical text and learn how to avoid spiritual deception. Avoiding spiritual deception. As we're there in 1 Timothy 4, let's look first at verses 1 and 2. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. If we're going to avoid spiritual deception... First and foremost, we must beware of deceitful spirits. Now, as we begin the text, it says that the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away. Now, the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit. According to what the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The latter times, the last days began with Jesus' ministry and will conclude with his return. In 2 Timothy 3.1, it says, In the last days, difficult times will come. The fact is, we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since Christ's first advent. And the last days will conclude with his return. But it says that in these last days, two things. First Timothy 4 tells us that some will fall away from the faith. And 2 Timothy 3.1 tells us difficult times will come. And I believe those two statements are very closely related. I believe that the difficulties that will come is what results in some falling away from the faith. Now the word fall away here is apostasy. Some are going to apostatize. They're going to fall away from the truth. That means they're sitting in the church. That means they've identified themselves with Christ. But they're going to fall away from the truth. They're going to apostatize. Now, let's be clear here. We don't have the time to get into a whole discussion on apostasy. But an examination of Hebrews clearly indicates to us that a true child of God will not apostatize. A true child of God will not fall away from the truth. Those who fall away from the truth fall away because they never had the truth to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that true believers cannot be deceived. What keeps a true believer from going into apostasy is they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. Yes, they can be deceived. But as they 
have the Holy Spirit within them. And as they sit under the teaching and preaching of Scripture, the Holy Spirit takes those Scriptures and begins to set off a warning in their mind, in their conscience, that wait a minute, something isn't right. Coming back to our text, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, in the end times, in the time between Christ's first and second coming, some are going to fall away from the faith. And that's because of false teachers. The some who were to depart from the faith were professing Christians. They professed Christ, but they did not possess Christ. They talked, but they didn't have the walk. They were turning from the faith. Now, what is the faith? The faith is the doctrinal content of Christianity. In Jude 3, when it says to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered, the faith there is the doctrinal content of Christianity. And it was once delivered. It's been delivered. The doctrinal content of Christianity is not continuously being developed. It's orthodox. It's settled. It's established. They were departing from the doctrinal content of Christianity. That they could turn away from the doctrinal content of Christianity demonstrates that a mere profession of faith does not guarantee the actual possession of eternal life. I know how many times have we been disturbed when we've seen somebody or heard of somebody who made this great profession of faith and then... Time passes by and all of a sudden there's, oh, I never really was part of that. I'm, I'm decrying. Jeez, we've seen this very much in the last several years. We've seen very popular, quote-unquote, Christian celebrities, musicians, artists, etc. Uh, one author who uh, wrote a book uh, about Christian dating. And these individuals have come out in the last year or two and they have denied the faith. They have made a claim that they were really never part of the faith. They're denying the deity of Christ, or they're denying the virgin birth of Christ, or they're denying salvation. Whatever it is they're denying, they're denying some aspect of the faith once delivered, and we're shocked by that. And that's because we're so easily caught up in Christian celebrity, rather than being caught up in, thus saith the Lord. What does the scripture say? Well, here's what the scripture says in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. This is nothing new. This has been going on since the age of the apostles. They depart. They go out. Why? They were never really part of us. As sad and as devastating as it is, we need to understand that when they depart, it's not because of what you or I have done. It's because they're departing because they were never part of us to begin with. And these ones who depart, depart because they're paying attention, they're listening to, they're giving heed to, Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. This is why we need to beware of deceitful spirits. Who are these deceitful spirits? Well, let's read 2 Timothy 3.13. The text says, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So these deceitful spirits are not necessarily demons. These deceitful spirits that Paul is referring to here are evil men. They're imposters, i.e. wolves in sheep's clothing. And they go from anywhere on the spectrum of bad to worse. And they're out there deceiving and being deceived. They themselves are deceived by their own deception. And these false teachers are teaching the doctrines of demons. Now before we consider what the doctrines of demons are, we need to notice here Paul's description of these false teachers. This is why he says, beware of deceitful spirits. Notice 
First of all, he denounces them as hypocrites. These seducing spirits or these deceitful spirits are hypocrites. On one hand, they're presenting themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ, but in reality, they're a tool of Satan. They are hypocrites. That means they're actors. The Greek word hypocrite is one who acts. And so they're putting on a mask. They're putting on a false face. They're presenting themselves as one thing, but in reality, they're something altogether different. And the fact that they're wearing a mask to present themselves as something they are not is why you and I need to examine them closely. That's one of the reasons why I'm very careful as to who I let in the preaching or teaching ministry of the church. You know, somebody walks in and says, hey, you need to let me speak. I say, whoa, you need to take a step back. There needs to be a time of examination. There needs to be a time of getting to know you. How do I know they're not a hypocrite? How do I know they're not an actor? Well, I'm only going to know that as I have time to examine them, as I've got time to get to know them and find out, hey, are they a hypocrite? Are they an actor? Are they somebody putting on a show? And I'll tell you, very quickly, when you tell somebody that, hold, a, hold, hold your horses, whoa there, wait, listen, how they react will tell you much. If they get upset, if they go off in a huff, go off in a tiff, let me tell you something, nine out of ten times, you're dealing with a hypocrite. You're dealing with an actor. Because if they're truly a child of God and, and truly feel led that God has called them to preach or teach the Word of God, they're going to be humble and they're going to understand and they're going to say, hey, no problem. Second, Paul denounces them as liars. They're lying... They're spreading false testimony and witness for the purpose of concealing their pride and arrogance. See, at the heart of every false teacher is pride or arrogance. And they'll lie. And they'll tell you what you want to hear, what they think you want to hear. They'll tell you what makes them look good. They'll tell you things to tear down those who are actually preaching and teaching the truth of Scripture. And, and, and they'll do that because they want to deflect from who they really are. And Paul reveals here several tactics of the liars. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless Discussion. In other words, they're corrupting the gospel with meaningless talk. What's that mean? Listen, if someone comes along and tells you, hey, listen, here's the gospel. Some people are good and some people are bad. And, you know, not everybody's equally bad. Not everybody's equally evil. Listen, meaningless talk. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There should be no discussion whether if somebody's Bad, less bad, more bad, some good, not enough good. All have sinned. So when someone comes along, some preacher, some priest, some minister, some rabbi, some whatever, and tells you, well, not everybody's a sinner, that is fruitless discussion. If somebody comes along and says, well, you don't have to repent of your sin. You just got to believe in your heart. I got news for you. More fruitless discussion. Repent and believe the gospel. Christ said it. The John the baptizer said it. The apostles said it. The whole New Testament says it. The Old Testament says it. Somebody comes along and tells you you don't need to repent. That is fruitless. It's not going to develop spiritual fruit. Well, Jesus is your Savior. You can get hellfire insurance. But don't worry about His Lordship. That'll come along. Whoa, more fruitless discussion. You can't divide Christ. He's either your Savior and your Lord or He's neither. Oh, and then, why even talk about hell? That turns people off. Don't tell people about hell. No, don't tell people there's poison. Let them drink it. Don't tell people there's a hell. Just let them go there. Why in the world do you need a Savior if you're not going to hell? 
more fruitless discussion than the denial of hell. Again, got to watch out for these hypocrites and these liars, these deceitful spirits. You got to know the gospel. And when you listen to their gospel message, if it doesn't line up with what the Bible defines as the gospel, you got a false teacher. You need to beware. Verse 7 of chapter 1, wanting to be the teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They're perverting preaching. They're trying to instruct others in the, church, in the truth, and they don't even know what the truth is. Well, there's a lot of people out there. They're, they'll pick out a passage, and then they'll allegorize it. Well, this is what it really means. You see, Jonah really wasn't swallowed by a great fish. What the story of Jonah is about is an allegory telling us, teaching us that why it's important to obey Jesus. It's not an allegory. It's literal, historical truth as revealed by God. And if Jonah wasn't swallowed by the great fish and spent three days and nights in Sheol, then I got news for you, Christian. Neither did Christ, because Christ said, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. So either Jonah's real and literal, or Jonah's not. And we'll, we'll, we'll come to one of these uh, teachers of the law business in a moment as we get into the doctrine of demons. But they'll, they'll, they'll take the Old Testament and, and they'll pervert it and make it teach things that it doesn't teach or say. Or how are we supposed to know? You've got to know your Bible. Christian, it's so important for you to know your Bible so that when somebody tries to feed you garbage, you can spit it out. So they corrupt the simplicity of the gospel with meaningless talk. They pervert the preaching and teaching of God's word. And they burden believers with needless controversy and endless rules. Verse 4 of chapter 1. Don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Well, I'll tell you, you want to catch a false teacher, just start listening to all the man-made rules that are going to start producing. When they start getting into controversies, rather than the truth of God's word, you're dealing with a false teacher. And boy, are we getting a lot of that today. Christians caught up in controversies, and the controversies I'm talking about are conspiracy theories. Christian, Forget the conspiracy theory. I don't know if they're right, wrong, or indifferent, but what I do know is we have the Bible. We've got the word of truth, and that's what we need to be turning to. Not endless controversies, not endless genealogies, not endless what-ifs, maybes, coulds, woulds. No. What does the Bible say? They reject God. They twist the evidence of his character. They call what God has called good, they call evil. So Paul denounces them as hypocrites. He denounces them as liars. And now coming back to our text, he says that their conscience is cauterized by a branding iron. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, their conscience has lost the ability to make moral decisions. Ephesians 4.19 says, And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That their conscience has been cauterized by a branding iron means they've been branded by Satan as his possession. And being his possession, they do his will. They have no moral compass. That's why they have no problem lying. They got no problem cheating. They got no problem stealing. All in the name of Christ. Beware of deceitful spirits. Man, you've got to know who you're listening to. You've got to examine. Are they preaching the truth of God's word? You've got to be like the Bereans. You've got to search the scriptures. And you've got to check it. 
and check their sources. You've got to listen and look at their life. What, not only what they're saying, but what they're doing. Are they a hypocrite? Are they a liar? Is their conscience cauterized by a branding iron? Now, verses 3 to 5, as we're avoiding spiritual deception, we first have to beware of deceitful spirits. But in verses 3 to 5, we now need to beware of the doctrines of demons. We need to beware the doctrines of demons. Notice he said at the end of verse 2 that uh, we need to beware that uh, there are deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 3 to 5, he gives us an example of these doctrines of demons. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's re received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, Paul calls attention to two examples of doctrines of demons. Two examples that Timothy was dealing with where there, there were seducing spirits, deceiving false teachers who came into the church of Ephesus and started teaching that they needed to stop getting married. They needed to forbid marriage. Marriage was evil. And they needed to abstain from certain foods. Now, let's deal with, first of all here, some teachers were forbidding people from marriage. Now, let's be clear here. There is plenty of things in the Bible that God has called us to abstain from. He has called us to abstain from idolatry. He's caused, uh, called us to abstain from sexual immorality. He has called us to abstain from drunkenness. He has called us to abstain from fleshly lust. He has called us to abstain from other sins. And these sins of the flesh, which are very familiar to the pagan and unconverted, the unregenerate person, should not be found among the practices of a Christian. But when it comes to the issue of marriage, marriage was created by God... And it was blessed by God. And to teach that people should abstain from marriage is to teach a doctrine of demons. Now, is there anything wrong with singleness? No. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with a host of issues. From singleness, to divorce, to um, remarriage, to widowhood, and singleness. And he says right in the text, listen, if you're single... Great. If you're married, great. In your singleness, devote yourself to serving the Lord. In your marriage, serve the Lord, but you also need to be devoted to your husband and your wife. Nowhere in the Bible did he ever forbid marriage. And yet, here come these false teachers on the scene, and they're saying, wait a minute, we've got to forbid marriage. Marriage is no longer good and holy and honorable before the Lord. Rejected. It's a doctrine of demons. So someone comes along and starts teaching something that is contrary to God's word. It's a doctrine of demons. It is from the pit of hell itself. Second, some false teachers were demanding abstinence from certain foods. And this teaching came from twisting the scriptures regarding dietary laws. Remember, they wanted to be teachers of the law. They didn't know the law to save their life. Now, the dietary laws as established in Leviticus had a twofold purpose. First, they were established to make Israel distinct from pagans and their worship. Second, they were established to keep Israel free from disease. And one of the reasons why the Levitical dietary laws are not applicable today is because the conditions regarding the Jewish nation are not applicable today. Okay? Now... Is that to say that we just throw out that portion of Scripture? No, because there's still things to learn. There's still clearly things in there that principles that are applicable today. If we know that there's something out there that we shouldn't eat because it's going to cause harm to our body, then we should abstain from those things. But notice here Paul's response to the issue of food. He says, everything created by God is good. And then he goes on to say, it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, what is the word of God? 
well, obviously we would say, well, that's the Bible, yes. But in the context, Paul's use of the phrase, the word of God, refers to the gospel. And you can cross-reference that with 2 Timothy 4.2, Titus 1.3, and Titus 2.5. In the pastoral epistles, when Paul uses the phrase, word of God, he's specifically referring to the gospel. And his point is that the gospel brings a proper understanding of food. Okay? The gospel brings a proper understanding of food. The prayer here is a prayer of thanksgiving that recognizes God's work of creating and providing the food. In other words, the gospel kind of takes us back to the Edenic state. I've created all this, this, these things for you, and it was good. However, don't eat that one thing. So even in the garden, there, God said, don't eat this. Okay? But when, we're, when we come to the gospel and we receive the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate us and teach us these things. And so the gospel should be making clear to us what God requires or doesn't require regarding the establishment of food. And furthermore, not only is it sanctified, is all food sanctified by means of the word of God, it is also sanctified by prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for creating and providing the food. Food does not need to be rejected so long as it is eaten after expressing thanksgiving through prayer. If you've ever wondered, how come we pray before we eat? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, all the way back into the, into the Torah. They were told, before you eat, give thanks to God. Okay? Jesus continued to give thanks to God before he ate. Anytime he ate or broke bread, whatever, he gave thanks. We see it continuing here with the apostles, through the book of Acts and now into the epistles. Before you partake of food, give thanks to God. And actually be thankful. Don't just, as easy as it is for all of us to go through the ritual or the emotion, make sure that your heart is truly thankful to God for the food that you have. Let me make two caveats here. First, Paul normally regarded what a person eats as an indifferent matter so long as the practice does not cause spiritual harm to another believer. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 to 9. In other words, you know, while you have the freedom to eat whatever you want to eat, if you know that eating something is going to be a stumbling block to your brother, you don't eat it in front of your brother or sister, okay? We're supposed to have enough care and concern for one another that we would say, hey, you know what, even though I have the right to do this, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be a stumbling block, all right? That would be like, you know, Here's somebody that, uh, you know, shouldn't be eating a certain food, and then you're going to walk in, and man, he, oh boy, it just comes in, and it smells so good, and you just sit down, and mmm, you're enjoying that right in front of me. You're smiling ear to ear. You didn't have any care, and your attitude is, that's their problem, not mine. You're selfish. You need to examine yourself, okay? You need to examine yourself for selfish attitudes. We don't want to be a stumbling block to a, to a brother or a sister in Christ, now, if they don't have a problem with you eating that in front of them, fine. Then go ahead and eat it. But if it's going to tempt your brother or sister to, to take something that they shouldn't be taking, partaking in, then you don't do it in front of them. Second, we cannot apply Paul's words here to an approval of illicit drug use, drunkenness, or gluttony. Okay? You know, I've heard Christians say, well, if God created everything good, then I should be able to partake of whatever substance is out there, whatever mushroom or green herb that's growing. Hey, let me partake of it as long as I give thanks. No, that's not what God is saying here. All right. First uh, Corinthians 6, 9 to 12 and 11, 21 to 22 uh, makes it very clear that uh, that doesn't apply. That is an undisciplined action, okay? You know, God didn't say as long as you're thankful for your food, you can be a pig at the trowel, okay? All things with moderation. Boy, that's a word that Christians don't understand today, isn't it? Moderation, okay? Just because it's all there don't mean you've got to eat it all. So what we see here, as we're looking at these doctrines of demons... The two examples had to do with what we would call religious asceticism. That is, they were trying to achieve holiness through asceticism, through giving up fleshly enjoyments, as if somehow they could identify themselves with Christ through that. 
Let me tell you, friends, holiness is not achieved through any form of asceticism. Holiness is only achieved through your identification with Christ. Colossians 2, 20-23 says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The point is here that these doctrines of demons deal with externals, not with the heart issues. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul is citing these false teachers' own words to mock them. He's using sarcasm. Oh, yes, here they come. Oh, do not touch that. Don't taste that. Don't handle that. Listen, what does the Bible say? So the first thing you need to do, if you're going to be aware of the doctrines of demons, you need to examine what they're saying, and if it's dealing with mere external conformity and not issues of the heart, it is from the pit of hell. Secondly, the doctrines of demons teach the ideas of men, not the principles of God's Word. Paul emphasizes this twice in Colossians 2. He says these rules are the commandments and teachings of men. It's a self-made religion. It's a type of religion which people have made up for themselves apart from what God has revealed. It's a religion that takes some of God's commandments but sets aside others. And then it adds to what God has said by taking it further than what God intended. We need to be very careful. You know, we've, we've got people out there that got so many rules today that they, they think it's going to make them holy, but yet when it comes to the rules of God's Word, they're not obeying a one of them. Oh, but I kept my checklist. whoop de do you kept your checklist. And what did that win you? What prize did you get? Nothing in the sight of God. You see, these doctrines of demons will promote rules that appear to lead to godliness, but are only feeding and fueling pride and self-indulgence. As Paul says in Colossians 2.23, they have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know, this sort of man-made, rule-keeping approach to Christian living only feeds the flesh. Because it's not dealing with your pride. And pretty soon what happens is those who are keeping these man-made rules start looking down on those who don't keep the rules. Listen, examine yourself. If you find yourself being overly critical if you, of people, if you find yourself looking down at other people, if you constantly are looking and finding fault in everything and everybody else, i got news for you. You need to check yourself because you are dabbling with doctrines of demons. You are dabbling with man-made religion, man-made rules and traditions which may not... Listen have anything to do with God. All they're doing is feeding your flesh. Now, we don't have the time to get into other examples because I want us to get through verses 6 through 16, though we'll come back uh, later and we'll deal with some exam other examples, some modern examples of doctrines of demons. But I've given you enough here. Listen, number one, if it deals with externals and not the heart, it's from the pit of hell. It's a doctrine of the demon. If it's teaching the ideas of men but not the precepts or principles of God's word, it's a doctrine of demons. If it's promoting rules that appear to lead to godliness but are only feeding pride and self-indulgence, it's a doctrine of demons. Okay. So again, you've got to check against Scripture. Now number three, verses 6 through 16, we need to be wise in Scripture. So if we are going to avoid spiritual deception, number one, we need to beware of deceitful spirits. There are, you need to beware there are false teachers out there. You need to look at these people. Are they hypocrites? Are they liars? 
Are their conscience cauterized by a branding iron? Secondly, we need to beware of doctrines of demons. Again, examine the teaching. Is it promoting the ideas of men rather than the precepts or principles of God's word? Is it promoting rules that appear to lead to godliness but are only feeding pride and self-indulgence? And are they dealing with externals rather than the heart? The third action that we need to take to avoid spiritual deception in verses 6 through 16 is that we need to be wise in Scripture. We need to be wise in Scripture. What should our strategy be when we live in a world influenced with false teaching? The first step to not falling prey to deceiving spirits, the false teachers, and to doctrines of demons, false teaching, is to be nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. We need to be nourished in the, on the words of faith and sound doctrine. Verse 6 to 7. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Paul urges Timothy to continue to nourish himself on the truths and teachings of, of the Bible that he has been following. The word nourish means to maintain or support. In this context, nourishment is, is spiritual feeding. You need to feed yourself on the truth of God's Word. And spiritual nourishment will promote spiritual growth. And proper nourishment means that you need to be constantly meditating on the words of faith and sound teaching. Notice that. Constant nourishment Constant feeding on the words of the faith, that's doctrine, and of sound doctrine. Okay, So basically he's telling you twice, doctrine, doctrine. That's what you need. You need a diet of doctrine. His appeal to Timothy is to reject the empty ideas of the heretics. He describes the false teaching of, of, of these uh, doctrines of demons and, and uh, deceiving spirits as worldly fables fit only for old women. He says, have nothing to do with that. That's a strong rejection. Don't even occupy your time with this profane babbling. Sometimes false teachings best ignored rather than discussed. Now, don't mistake, we need to always have an answer. But sometimes, rather than studying the false doctrine... You need to spend more time studying sound doctrine, studying orthodoxy, so that you can pinpoint why the false doctrine is wrong. The second step to not falling prey. Again, we're talking about being wise in Scripture. Number one, you need to be nourished on the word of faith and sound doctrine. The second step is don't to not falling prey to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons is here. Number two, discipline yourself for godliness. Picking up in verse 7, On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers." You see, in contrast to the vapid whimsies of false teachers, Timothy was to seek after God. The word training emphasizes that spiritual development doesn't happen by chance. So you not only need to be, have spiritual food to chew on, but you need spiritual exercise to develop. You know, an athlete is somebody who's focused and committed to constant training. He or she refuses to let up. They're always striving. And believer, you and I, we need to have that same focus and commitment. We need to refuse to be sidetracked by wrong teaching. So let me ask you, are you being fed? Are you getting nourished on sound doctrine? And if you think eating once a week on sound doctrine, when you listen to the pastor's message, is going to be sufficient, I've got news for you, it's not. 
It's not sufficient. We need to be daily in the Word of God. And let me ask you this. What type of exercise are you getting spiritually? How are you disciplining yourself for godliness? Let's develop that here. Now, his statement, Paul's statement in the first half of this verse, is not a disparagement on bodily exercise. His point is simply this. Spiritual discipline is more important than physical discipline, okay? It's great that you're physically exercising. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Bodily exercise is good, but it's limited in its extent and duration. It's only good for this lifetime. But spiritual exercise develops godliness not only in this lifetime, but for all eternity. Spiritual exercise is going to impact all of your actions, all of your experiences, all of your relationships. And it amazes me that, you know, people will spend 10 to 15 hours a week in physical activity, but they'll spend little in Bible study. You know, how much time in a week do you spend studying the Bible? Well, I, I came to Sunday school, I came to morning service, I came to the afternoon service. Okay, you know, I take a class here, okay. But friends, that, that, those things are here to help you along. Those things are here to give you more, but with the expectation that you're going to go home and keep exercising. Okay? I challenge you to sit down and write out how much time you actually spend studying the Bible versus how much time you spend in anything else. Growing in godliness requires you to labor and strive. And labor there means to, it, it, strenuous toil that saps the energy. You know, when's the last time you, you wore yourself out studying the Bible? Striving is putting forth the last ounce of energy to reach a goal. When's the last time you put your last bit of energy into studying the Bible? So, number one, if we're going to be wise in Scripture, we've got to be nourished on the words of faith and sound doctrine. Number two, we have to um, discipline ourselves for godliness. And the third step to not falling prey to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons is number three, to persevere in the teaching and preaching of Scripture. Look at verses 11 to 16. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterances with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, what were the things Timothy was to command and teach? The scripture, sound doctrine, and the faith once delivered. He was to apply himself to reading, to exhortation, to pre which is preaching, and teaching. And here Paul provides a model for public worship. Read the scripture. Preach the Scripture, teach the Scripture. Preaching includes moral instruction that appeals to the will. Timothy was to exhort, that is to warn, to advise, to urge his listeners regarding to the words of Scripture. Help them apply the words to their daily lives. Teaching refers to training in doctrine and how to study the Bible and things of that nature. People need to know, understand, and constantly re be reminded of the great truths of the Christian faith. And nothing's more disturbing to me when I hear people say, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need to know that. I don't need to know that. Just give me whatever I need, you know. There, th listen, if that's your attitude, Christian, you need to examine yourself. If you don't have an interest in what the Bible actually says and how to find out what the Bible actually says, why? Is it because you're malnourished? You need to know and understand and be reminded constantly of these things. I'm going to tell you something. Preaching and teaching God's Word is not for the lazy or faint of heart. 
I've been called to declare God's Word, and I've got to be ready to do it at all times, in and out of season, pandemic or no pandemic, I'm going to preach and teach God's Word. And I pray that you're listening and learning God's Word. We can't just preach it when it's convenient or when it's comfortable. We can't listen to the preaching when it's convenient or comfortable. We've got to listen and get it when we can at all times. And you know what? When you declare God's Word, that means that sometimes it's going to reprove you. Sometimes it's going to rebuke you. Sometimes it's going to exhort you to righteous living. And when somebody tries to pressure me to change the message simply to tickle ears rather than rattle your heart, I got word for you here. I'm committed to endure with all long suffering and keep on teaching God's word. Why? Because I need to protect you. I need to guard you. I need to guide you away from these doctrines of demons and these deceptive spirits. And notice, when it comes to the reading and preaching and teaching of Scripture, we are to take pains with these things. We're to be absorbed in these things. Take pain means learn by repetition, meditation, and practice. Being absorbed in them means we immerse ourselves in reading and preaching and teaching. How much are you immersing yourself in the reading and preaching of God's Word? And believe me, there's a host of of sermons out there that you can get and listen to, not just mine. Just make sure that the one teaching is solid and sound, not a false teacher. And if you're not sure, get a hold of me and I'll tell you. But how many of you take pains to hear the Word of God? How many of you are absorbed in these things? Listen, the only way you're going to be wise in Scripture is to immerse yourself in Scripture. Then he says, pay close attention to the teaching. we got to constantly be scrutinizing our theology. Are you doing that? Listen, are you still using the same terminology, the same Christian terminology you learned back when you were a babe in Christ? Now, I'm not saying that you throw that away, but if you haven't added to that vocabulary, if you haven't added to that doctrinal repertoire, why not? What's wrong? What's going on? You know, the Scripture warns us to beware of false teachers because they are ravenous wolves who speak perverse things. And just as wolves are deadly to sheep, false teachers are deadly to the church. And they are more dangerous than those outside of the church. They may act like a sheep and look like a sheep, but their words are perverse. They're twisted and distorted. They distort God's word. They purport destructive heresies. And that's why 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 tells us to examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And I want to, as we close here, I want to give you a four-step strategy for testing whether something is genuine or counterfeit from 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 8. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We're from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Number one, you need to ask yourself, is the teaching or the teacher exalting Christ? If they're exalting anyone or anything else other than Christ, it's Antichrist. Listen, there are cults out there, Christian cults, that promote the Holy Spirit above Jesus Christ. Listen, the Holy Spirit is pointing people to Christ. He's never to be promoted above Christ. So some Johnny-come-lately teacher come on the scene, and, and all they're promoting is the Holy Spirit, and they're not showing you how the Holy Spirit promotes Christ, but they're elevating the Holy Spirit above Christ. Let me tell you, that can be Antichrist. 
Yeah, but, 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 but pastor, it's the Holy Spirit. I know it's the Holy Spirit, and I love the Holy Spirit, and I'm thankful I've got the Holy Spirit inside me. But the Holy Spirit always promotes Christ, not himself. Number two, does the teaching or teacher oppose worldliness? If the teaching or teacher is not opposing worldliness, it is Antichrist. It is opposed to God. It is aligned with the enemy, Satan. Number three, does the teaching or teacher elevate biblical truth? Does the teaching or teacher elevate biblical truth? Again, there's a lot of pseudo-spiritual preachers and teachers claiming truth and spewing lies. They love to take, take a little truth and mash it together with some humanistic philosophy. Listen, if mainstream Christianity or the world embraces them, I got news for you, believer, beware and flee. So somebody comes along the scene and they're being accepted by, quote-unquote, the world, they're being embraced by the world, or they're being embraced by mainstream Christianity where anything goes, run away, reject them because they're not from God. And number four, number four, does the teacher or teaching demonstrate love for God or others? Loving God is this, obeying Him and His commands, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Listen, if they're not obeying God's Word, out the door they need to go. So Christian, we're living in a day of deception. And my heartfelt prayer is that you might avoid spiritual deception. I need you to beware of the deceitful spirits. I need you to beware of the doctrines of demons. I need you to be wise in the scripture. Are you nourishing yourself in the words of sound doctrine? Are you disciplining yourself for godliness? Are you persevering in the teaching and preaching of scripture? Examine yourself and answer those questions honestly. As well, I've given you a fourfold strategy to test false teachers or false teaching. Do, do they exalt Christ? Do they oppose worldliness? Do they elevate biblical truth? Do they demonstrate love for God and others? Christian, beware, be warned, and be wise in Scripture. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you again, we thank you for the word that you've set down before us. Lord, thank you for giving us these warnings. The warning that there are false teachers. The warning that there is false teaching. And Father, help us to be aware of these things. But Lord, more importantly, help us to be wise in the Scriptures. Help us, Lord, encourage us to saturate ourselves with Your Word. Because, Lord, the days are evil. And the only way in which we can redeem the time is to spend the time in Your Word. Father, give us a hunger for your word. Father, rouse us out of the spiritual doldrum and get us on the spiritual treadmill. Get us on the spiritual bike. Get us on the spiritual uh, track that we can exercise ourselves in, in godliness. Oh, Father, give us an appetite for the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, I'm afraid that we live in a day and an age in which we can sit and watch movies for hours on end. We can sit and watch sports for hours on end. We can sit and do whatever for hours on end. But when it comes to wanting to spend time in Scripture, we just don't have the time. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for that pitiful attitude. And Lord, that you might rouse us out of this complacency. And stir within us again that first love of love for you, and a love for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.